You're listening to the Gator Sports Podcast with your host, Zach Alboverde. Coming in hot. And Graham Hall. Jumping. Coming smooth. Jumping. And the bass gets jumping. Brought to you by the Gainesville Sun and Gatorsports.com. Welcome into the latest Gator Sports Podcast presented by the Gainesville Sun. I'm your host, Zach Alboverde, joined to my right by my co-host, Graham Hall, and we are here to recap what was an incredible showdown in the swamp between Alabama and Florida. Came down to the wire. It was not a two-touchdown game like we all told you it wouldn't be. And uh, Florida had a chance right there at the end to pull off the upset. Not able to get it done. The missed extra point from their first touchdown drive comes back to haunt them in the end. But nonetheless, a lot of moral victories coming out of this game. I know some Florida players don't want to hear that. I know Florida fans don't want to hear that. But at the end of the day, I think for the second time in nine months, Florida showed that they can compete with the best program in college football, and they're right there on the cusp of being a championship contender. Yeah, Zach, now 36 hours removed from that game. I'm certain that there's still some disappointment out there Yep, for Florida fans. but It should be. I mean, you can't really be happy with a moral victory. I think you can be optimistic two totally different things because Florida absolutely answered some questions this weekend and we're going to get into that a little bit later here but I absolutely think that if you put the game in context yeah Dan Mullen said it they expected to win so there's disappointment there you had to come away feeling good about Florida's long-term potential yeah and especially looking at the rest of their schedule and how some of those teams have played so far you're going to get tested every single week in the SEC, and there's going to be some tough matchups for Florida, specifically in the cocktail party in Jacksonville. But, I mean, that trip to LSU doesn't look as daunting as it did going into the year. Certainly not. And, I mean, regardless of how some of these SEC teams progressed throughout the course of this season, are they going to get to the point where they're as good and as talented as this Alabama squad that just rolled through town? Probably not. That Georgia's the closest thing that Florida's going to see to that. And hopefully by that game, they can get Anthony Richardson back, who did not suit up on Saturday. Well, I take that back. He was in uniform. Oh, he was dressed out, and he was medically cleared to play. And if Emory Jones, God forbid, would have been hurt, which he didn't get hurt despite carrying the ball 19 times, Mullen said Richardson would have gone in there and just been a stand in the pocket don't run around and just use your arm and be you know, somewhat of a decoy, if anything. But uh, we'll see how that plays out moving forward. No Ventrell Miller in this game. And when I rewatched it, Graham, it was a good rewatch. Great game. Just, just a fantastic football game, man. Like Swamp was rocking two of the nation's best, honestly. And you saw that, I think, reflected in the polls. Florida didn't drop. And if anything, you could make an argument that they should have moved up. But just to have that atmosphere like that, man, I mean, it was uh, it was it was everything that this program needed, save for a win. And and you saw the recruiting reaction come out of that, kind of reflected that. People were saying that that game was louder than the 2019 Auburn game. Oh, yeah. I didn't necessarily see the conspiracy takes of oh, those white boxes under the stands are actually speakers, not Wi-Fi signals. I didn't see any of that coming from Alabama fans. But you got to give some credit to the Crimson Tide because they came out of that game also admitting that that was one of the loudest stadiums that they've ever played in 
And, you know, they've played basically everywhere at this point, so they would really know. I think that that's a greater testament to the intensity of the sound than Auburn coming in here with Bo Nix, a freshman quarterback. But what you just said about Anthony Richardson not playing in the game, I think that's a huge part of why you have to come away with that long-term optimism because every SEC opponent from here on out should face him. Yeah, and look, I mean, we don't know when Ventro Miller was, is going to get back, but you have to think losing by two points, if you would have had your leading tackler from a year ago and probably your best offensive weapon. Most dynamic, certainly. I mean, what could have the outcome been? And, and when I rewatched the game to see the end, Ventro Miller sitting on the sideline, the final score right there across the screen, and him just kind of staring out onto the field, you just feel for the guy. To come back, we talked about on the pod last week, but to come back for your senior year, go to SEC Media Days, kind of go into the season with the goal of being a 100-tackle linebacker and just leading this unit back to Atlanta and getting this crack at Alabama that had to just eat away at him. But this defense, after a shaky start, which we'll talk about after the first break, they really came to play on Saturday. Bryce Young was as advertised in the first quarter, and then I think that defense and that crowd kind of rattled him. He was able to show some composure in the second half, but just overall, a great game plan from Todd Grantham. You got to tip your cap to what they were able to do. And I mean, they, yes, they converted some big third downs, seven of them, four came on penalties. And we can get into all of that. And I'm sure we'll talk about it over the course of this pod, but a lot of uh, fans and, and I'm sure players, although they wouldn't admit it after the game, not happy with some of those flags that got called by the refs. Certainly not. I don't think anyone watches an Alabama game over the last 12 years and says, well, those guys need a little bit of help nope. from the officials. I, I don't know what the officiating crew was thinking um, on that Kyir Elam one. Uh, you can make a case for some of the earlier ones. But yeah, give Todd Grantham a whole lot of credit for his game plan and certainly his ability. And his adjustments. And his adjustments to set that the team in a position to really shut down that Alabama offense for the last three quarters, held them to under a hundred yards, I believe 82 after the first quarter there. So certainly impressive in that regard, but back to Ventrell Miller, you know, seeing him walk out of the tunnel, we have talked about how valuable he has been led Florida in tackles last year, second leading tackler of the year before any guy who's given you 140 tackles over the last 22 games is obviously going to be someone you're missing, but he was still there, as Dan Mullen noted. He was involved throughout the week in the game plan. He was helping coach up the other younger linebackers. And being on the sidelines, I'm certain that we've seen how loud and involved he can be. I'm certain that he was there among the noises yeah. in the stadium. So not going anywhere, even though he's not available to play. It was tough to see him unavailable to contribute, but you know that he was involved in Florida success. Well, you know what? was also involved in Florida's success was that rushing attack. They Oof. are legit with their ground game, and I think we saw that against Alabama on Saturday. The Gators right get right there at around 250 yards and eclipse 200 yards for the third straight game to see where they're at now against a, a front like that, to be able to run the ball, their offensive line, push the pile, and we'll, we'll give some kudos here at the end of the podcast. But just incredible what they were able to do with their rushing offense and then what Florida was able to do with his rushing defense holding Alabama to under 100 yards. So we got a lot to break down and dissect from this game. And we'll jump to the first break and kind of come back and give our recap before we hand out some helmet stickers at the end. But before we do that, Graham, I just – 
big picture, like what is your just overall takeaway from this game for how it sets up Florida in the future with their schedule and obviously potential matchup down the road in a rematch in Atlanta? Games are won in the trenches. And I think recently you could have made a case that Florida has a massive disparity in their development and talent level in the trenches compared yeah. to the Alabamas and Georgias. And I came away feeling that Florida won the battles in the trenches against the top team over the last, what, 12-plus years in college football. And if any moral victory is the most significant, it's that one to me because that is going to set you up not just for this season but for years to come, theoretically. So that, that was the biggest one to me. One of my takeaways, and maybe it's not so much with Florida, although I'll have a lot on this pod, but I mean, everyone's just like automatically assuming that if the Gators run the table, <laughs> they're going to see Alabama again in Atlanta. I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure that Alabama is going to make it to Atlanta. That's my point. Is I mean, they showed on Saturday that they can be beat. And they show that there's some flaws in their game and, and certainly in the personnel that they have, a, a lot that they replaced from last season. But they're not going to see an intimidating environment maybe like Florida. Texas A&M will be up there. But listen, Matt Corral and Lane Kiffin and that Ole Miss football team, they're coming. And Mac Jones and that offense last year had the horses and the firepower to outscore Matt Corral and that bunch, we'll see if this Alabama team can do it because they're humming over there in Oxford. And, I, I mean, even if Alabama is able to somehow muster up enough offense to win another shootout against Ole Miss, because that's what it's going to be, the very next week they got to go to Texas A&M. So I, and then they close the season with – Back-to-back against Arkansas and at Auburn, which isn't going to be a cakewalk. So, uh, look, I, I think Alabama's still the favorite, but they they show it showed on Saturday that they could be beat, and I'm not necessarily convinced that they're just going to go through their conference slate undefeated. I think their defense is much worse, at least right now. I know it's only week three, and every argument you make for Florida, they can improve. Absolutely goes for Alabama. But I'm not seeing the talent level that I'm used to seeing out of that Alabama defense. And as you just mentioned, this is one that got into a shootout with the Rebels. That was a, what, 115 points in that game? 63 so to 48. That Alabama defense gave up 48 points to a less developed, I guess would be the term, Matt Corral, and a Lane Kiffin that was less familiar with his weapons. Now the Rebels do have to go on the road to Tuscaloosa, but you look at that defense, I'm thinking that Ole Miss may get 50 on him. I mean, hey, DJ Durkin has got them improved defensively. I think that was obviously the knock on the Rebels and always has been is that they they couldn't get it done on that side of the ball. And uh, look, my expectation is Alabama can win the West, but I would not be shocked to see the Gators meet somebody else in Atlanta if they're able to get there. So we're going to get to this first break when we come back on the other side. We're going to recap this game, kind of dissect it, Give our takeaways and, and thoughts after re-watching it, having a couple nights to sleep on it. And then in the last segment, we will give out our helmet stickers and turn the page to uh, Tennessee Week here in Gainesville. This is Gainesville Sun Sports Editor Arnold Feliciano. 
please support our coverage of University of Florida athletics by subscribing to the Gainesville Sun or Gatorsports.com. It's easy. Just go to www.gainesville.com slash subscribe now. Thank you for your support. I'm Blake Topmeyer, and this is SEC Football Unfiltered, a new podcast from the USA Today Network. Each week, we'll discuss the hottest topics that matter to the passionate fan bases of the SEC. I've covered the SEC for eight years. As for my co-host, longtime sports columnist John Adams, let's just say he's got a few decades on me. Not as many decades as some people think. Contrary to popular opinion, I did not cover General Nealon, but I did interview Bear Bryant, and I interviewed Nick Saban, and I covered Archie Manning and Peyton Manning. More insightful interview, John. Bear Bryant, Archie Manning, Steve Spurrier, or Johnny Majors? Got to go with Steve Spurrier there. He's the great quipster. SEC Football Unfiltered debuts this summer. Let John and I be your tour guides from the season opener through the national championship. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back into the Gator Sports Pod. Zach and Graham here. And Graham, as we get into this game, obviously came down to the wire at the end. We'll talk about the two-point play and how it played out in the fourth quarter. But in the first, I mean, right out of the gate, man, it looked like Florida was going to have to hand over the sticks with the way that Alabama just dominated on offense. And uh, the early interception from Emory Jones, they were able to take advantage of. But, But I think to start with Florida's defense, I mean, we know how they played in the final three quarters, but in that first quarter, they had opportunities to make some stops and we'll get into the details of it. But like they just, I think came out and got hit in the mouth. I don't know if Alabama scores like that on those first three drives, if Ventro Miller's in the game. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I know that there's no point really in a lot of Florida fans right now wondering it because the game has come and gone, but that's a guy that consistently got you a stop on third down. And you're just, I mean, Right out of the gate, you're getting lined up. You're trying to figure out what they're doing, what they're throwing at you. You need your senior leader and your middle linebacker getting everyone lined up. It, it hurt not having them out there. We know how much, let's call it pressure, has been put on that middle linebacker position to not only know their assignments, but know everyone else's. And as we're going to talk about a little bit later, be able to play other positions on that front seven. And we noted last week, there wasn't really anyone that could step in and seamlessly be Ventro Miller 2.0. And I think you absolutely saw that. The other thing I think you saw in that first quarter was a little bit of an inexperience coming through in the way that that defense took a little while, I think, to settle in mm-hmm. on some things, and notably in the secondary. Listen, I think Kyrie Lim's going to be a fantastic player for a long time, but I think he would admit that his play in the first quarter was not up to the standard that he has set. And that goes for Avery Helm as well, the safeties. And he and he basically tweeted that on Monday. But look, the first quarter, Graham, they jump out and get those 21 points. And who's everyone on Twitter mad at? Go ahead, say it. Who are they mad at on defense? That's got to be Todd Grantham. They're mad at Todd Grantham. Oh, come on. What is this? What is this game plan? Well, the game plan turned out to be pretty good. And when you go back and rewatch it, in hindsight, like, could he have called something better here or there? I'm sure, absolutely, right? But almost every single touchdown, save for the one where Trey Dean got taken out on the pick, you had a guy right there to make the tackle 
and get the stop, and he missed. Kyrie Elam was one of them. Trevez Johnson was the other. Not knocking those guys because they both made plays later in the game. But you had the right call there on some of those scores. So they just needed to get off the field. They needed to make the stop, especially on third down when they had those opportunities and the penalties. And that kept Bama drives alive in the first quarter. It kept them alive in the third and fourth quarter. But really in that first, I mean, if you are able to get off the field and they don't score on three straight possessions, don't get that confidence built up and your defense doesn't get a P.I. called or you make that tackle instead of miss. I mean, that totally changes, I think, the confidence and how and how it played out. It took a while for Florida to gain it. And I think if they could have got it early in the game, that definitely would have affected the course of it. I'm no expert or coach, but it seemed to me that the difference in philosophy in the first quarter and the final three quarters was that Florida's defense in the first quarter felt like they had to be aggressive to beat the Crimson Tide. You saw a lot of six-man rush, you know. This is a team that showed in the third quarter that they can consistently get coverage sacks. Mm -hmm. You leave two linebackers, drop five, rush four, and your defensive line is talented enough to make that happen. They don't have to gamble as much as they did in the first quarter, in my mind. And maybe this is, you know, totally wrong, but just look at the stats. When you left your corners on an island, they're more likely, in my mind, to be forced to make, I don't want to call it a boneheaded play, but possibly be put in a position to commit a penalty. And I just saw a lot of success with a four-man rush that made me think, why doesn't Florida just primarily rely on this? Why all the disguised blitzes and getting guys out of position to make the tackle? Because I don't think this team has really convinced you that they can make those one-on-one tackles at a high frequency. So you need to, I think, play a little bit more conservative. But when you're playing conservatively, you're a really good defense. So uh, to me, I think that Florida learned a lot about how much they don't need to really gamble moving forward. I definitely think there's something to be said about the way that they line up in in coverage because, I mean, that made a big difference, and I was happy to see them actually get some guys in man. But, I mean, the way that they either just adjusted, settled into the game, I don't know what it was, but that second quarter, man, like if they play defensive like that the rest of the season, they're going to be hard to beat. Three total yards for Alabama in that period. Three consecutive three and outs. A shutout now. And that was, you know, at that point, that was for the second time shutting Bama out in a quarter. Now, different team, obviously. But it's it's just that. And that was obviously what Florida needed to get back into the game. And then you saw them offensively in the first half come out and get the field goal drive. And then Emory Jones gets picked off on Florida's second series. Looks like a bit of a mix-up there with the communication or whatever the protection assignments were supposed to be with Richard Garage, and Jones just takes a hit. And after the game, Mullen was like, hey, he made the perfect read on that play, and he got hit as he was releasing the ball, and this pass sailed on him. So he wasn't mad at Jones with, with that interception, and he said unlike the first two weeks where he made some just awful bad errors, he goes, I can't think – of a play on Saturday where he had a bad error. And it's weird, Graham, because it was almost like, and it took him a while, 
because it wasn't just it wasn't like he just flipped the switch after the interception. They had the turnover on downs, then he went three and out. But once he settled in, I felt like he looked more comfortable against Bama and confident than he did against USF and FAU, which didn't make any sense, but that's what it looked like out there. My point about the defense is completely opposite when it comes to Florida's offense. It looks like Emory Jones is more comfortable doing things that are technically complex. You know, play action, not having, you know, disguising things. I mean, when he has an empty backfield and five wide receivers lined up, that's typically when I'm thinking, oh man, he's going to, you know, get forced into making a bad throw or possibly take a sack. Yeah, That's when I'm worried because it looks like, I mean, the play action stuff, the, the, the pitch plays, the, the shovel passes even, I mean, that's the stuff that he looks like he's very comfortable with. Yeah. And we had said for the first two weeks that we thought that Mullen was putting him in situations that are, we're going we're gonna to test him to get better. That's why I thought you saw a lot of that quote-unquote vanilla offense, that you weren't really going to see the technical, complex, play-action, disguise stuff. They weren't going to put that on film before the Crimson Tide. But then you see him come out and look very comfortable running that, it absolutely gives credence to what Dan Mullen has said all along. This guy is more comfortable running our offense, and I think you absolutely saw that on Saturday. And then you saw them come out in the second half after their defense pitched that shutout in the second quarter, and Emory Jones in an offense after making some halftime adjustments, I think figuring out what they needed to do to attack that tied defense, what worked, what didn't work. Three consecutive scoring drives there in the second half, and you just saw, I think, him really gain the confidence that he's been missing as a starting quarterback. And I'll say this. been great to have Anthony Richardson in that game. And if you have AR-15, Florida probably wins. His contributions are enough of a difference in the scoreboard. But in hindsight, if there's any silver lining from this, it's that Emory Jones went out there and got to have a game to himself. And he got to know that I can have this starting job and do well with it. And I can play against Alabama as QB1 and compete and put my team in position to win. And I've said, suggested early in the season, I think on this pod, but I noticed some people that I've talked to, that maybe at least early, it's been a bit of an adjustment for Emory to deal with coming off of the field and being in a two-quarterback rotation and dealing with another guy having success knowing that there's now pressure on you to go out there and perform when you get back in the game. It Before, he had the other role. There was no pressure. He, he got to be what Anthony Richardson is now. And I don't think it was anything in terms of jealousy or controversy or anything like that. He's genuinely happy when Anthony goes out there and performs. But it is something mentally that he's got to process and shrug off or however you want to categorize it. But can everybody do that seamlessly? Probably not. So I think for him to go out and just have a game where it was his game and then get this confidence builder, I think that's that's definitely a silver lining to take out of this. No, you got to go ahead and gloat, man. We said it on the pod last week that – Emery not having to look over his shoulder with Anthony possibly being to come, able to come in. The crowd cheering, we want Anthony. I mean, 
that was going to help him from a mental perspective. We said that last week. And it sounded counterintuitive. How could losing your dynamic option against the number one team in the country possibly help your starting quarterback? And, and again, to reiterate, definitely would have wanted Richardson. Yeah. It would have made a difference. It's, but we knew that it could absolutely help Emory Jones. Were we saying that the quarterback situation was better with Anthony Richardson being out? No. But the guy that you were going to have to go with may play more comfortably, ease into the game plan, knowing that he's not, okay, hey, I got to, you know, make a three-play, 80-yard drive happen here or else I'm getting pulled. And people are saying, oh, I can't be as good as the 19-year-old breathing down my neck right now. He didn't have to do that. And he knew every game going into the first and the second one what series Anthony was going in. It wasn't just like, I got to go... I got to go and do it on this series because I know Richardson's coming in. So, like, this is my opportunity to perform. That wasn't even a thought in his mind on Saturday. And that had to be such a relief for him in a sense. I mean, as we saw after the game, yeah, he would have wanted Anthony to be able to play because they're teammates. They want the best for each other. And with this team, two is better than one. Yeah. But I think with Emery, not only was he getting a chance to show what he could do with his full knowledge of the offense – but he wasn't really worried about the mistakes costing him his long-term chance of being Florida's starting quarterback. And that was absolutely critical for his success in my mind. And I think you saw a lot of that come to life. And I think another thing in hindsight that, that really helps with Emory's situation is just now you're not going to have that controversy when Anthony comes back as much, I think. Because now I think Florida fans understand what Emory is capable of and why he has been the starter and why Dan has been sticking with him. And I think now, as this quarterback rotation continues throughout the course of the year, Emory's going to get the same support as Anthony. And I think that was important because we haven't talked about it yet, Graham, but there were boos in the second quarter. Yep. Emory Jones got booed in what was the fifth Largest attendance ever in Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. And then he went out there and performed over the next three quarters. I wouldn't have blamed him if he Felipe'd the crowd. <laughs> I mean, I would not have, I would have kind of, you know, smiled about it up there in the press box because a lot of people are thinking that Florida's out of the game down 21 to 3. I can't blame them. But look, if Florida's going to have a turnover on downs or Florida's going to have a three and out or, God forbid, an interception. Guess what, folks? That's what happens when you play the number one team in the country. You're not going to be perfect on every play and every possession. And when your team that you're there cheering on isn't getting the job done, don't boo them. (laughs) Like, I mean, boo the refs. They definitely deserve to get booed on Saturday. But, like, kudos to Emory Jones for not even letting that get to him in terms of confidence and being able to play through those struggles and put together what was a it was a performance that was good enough to win. Does he still have room to improve? Can he still get way better? Absolutely. But he did what he needed to do for Florida to get in position to win the game and, and rally from a twenty one to three comeback. They did that in the second half. I think you really gotta give your hats off to that defense. I mentioned it earlier, but you know, for them to I think kind of figure out what they had to do to get some stops. And if it wasn't for those penalties, I mean, they're what, 3 of 13 on third down? Alabama is? Yeah. So. I mean, you got to give, I got to say this, got to give the defense 
more credit here because I know a lot of people are thinking that this is going to be like last year where if you don't have your quarterback come out and lead you on a touchdown to every drive that the other team's going to run right down your throat. But as you mentioned, half the team is on defense. If Emory Jones throws a pick or a turnover on downs happens, it wasn't that long ago that often the defense was your better chance sometimes of scoring here. So I don't know why people are still having these reservations that if Florida doesn't score on every single drive that it's it's over. Because as you saw on Saturday, the defense still may be this team's strength. We don't know that. That front seven may be the overall strength of this team. And people getting so down after one quarter on the starting quarterback before halftime against the number one team in the country just doesn't make too much sense to me. But maybe that's the trauma of last year where you saw these 100-point-plus shootouts. And if you didn't score on every possession, you were kind of out of the game. Before we get into the final break, I just obviously we got to mention the elephant in the room, and that's the missed extra point after Florida's first touchdown that came back to uh, bite them in the end. And the two point conversion try doesn't work out. Mullen said after the game that two guys went the wrong way or, or missed their assignment. There was two missed alignments basically on the play, and it looked like that pre snap. I'm really surprised that they didn't call. Timeout. Another I, timeout, though. I mean, I know that they were needed to save it for the defensive possession, but like that's your opportunity. You got to tie the game before you can worry about that. And it looked like they didn't know exactly what they were doing, and and obviously it, it showed that with the way that the two point try played out. But just unfortunate because your offense did everything that it needed to do, your defense did everything that it needed to do. Or should we say both of those units did enough to win the game or put you in overtime? And your special team's mishap there, and it was two of them. It wasn't just the missed extra point, but the muffed kickoff that resulted in the 99-yard touchdown drive, which, hey, great job by Florida for scoring on it, but if they would have maybe had a 75-yard drive, you have a little bit more time there at the end of the game to try and go down and win it. But... Obviously, we've got a nitpick here and talk about what didn't go right. Chris Howard, we'll see how he can rebound from this. But Jace Chrisman doesn't get that opportunity yet to kick a PAT or field goal. And we saw Howard able to connect with his first field goal attempt of the season. But that PAT is something that's going to eat away at him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I know a lot of Florida fans, it maybe gave you some PTSD from when special teams mishaps would cost you games. Like that LSU 2017 oh, game. Yeah, man. I mean, and that was a low-scoring affair, too. So to lose on a, a PAT, I mean, so sad. I know that Florida... I mean, think of Ole Miss. Yeah. Oh, man. It's like it's, can come down sometimes yeah. to something that small. And I think Alabama was in another game called the Kick Six a while back. I don't I don't remember. I, I'll have to go look at that. I maybe have heard about yeah, that. Yeah, it, it I'll have rings to a few it. bells. But... Yeah, it's just special teams is part of the game. And it's part of why we ask the questions in the offseason. Who are you bringing in at kicker? How do you replace the legendary Evan McPherson? Which, a loss, let's be honest, looks massive now. I mean, he's tearing it up with the Bengals. And he could still be your kicker right now as a senior. But he left and surprised a lot of people. I think a lot of people were like, why is this guy leaving? Well, he showed that he made the right decision. Absolutely. And you also... In retrospect, you had a lot of different comments from Dan Mullen last year 
about Evan McPherson that you didn't really have about Florida's kicker situation this year. They bring in Jace Chrisman from Mississippi State to compete with Chris Howard for the job, and that should have told you right then and there that they weren't really totally confident that they had a kicker that, let's use Mullen's own words, he used to say that they would love to trot Evan out there and see if he could hit a 60-yarder. And before that, McElwain would say, hey, let's see if we could hit a 55, 60-yarder with Eddie Pinheiro. You kind of took those for granted now in retrospect because if you don't have a a dynamic kicker, in Evan's case, a record-breaking program kicker, it could end up costing you these games. And man, I just was getting flashbacks to when Florida lost that SEC championship to Alabama several years ago, McIlwain's first season, and the first call he makes, Eddie Pinheiro on the recruiting trail, because that is so critical, underrated, position that can end up costing you the games that determine your season no doubt we're going to catch this final break and when we come back we're going to hand out some helmet stickers despite a loss some great performances from the gators and we'll let you know about them when we come back welcome back to the gator sports pod zach and graham here and i think some more things we could have talked about breaking down that game, but I wanted to save them for this segment and my thoughts and your thoughts on it. But my first helmet sticker, Graham, is going to go out to the offensive line. Look, we know, we've heard all the fuss when it comes to Florida offensive line recruiting and development and where things have been at with that position. But no complaints right now about John Hevesy with the product that he's putting on the field. Because those guys went out there and showed against all that defensive talent that Alabama has up front, that all these three stars and some of these guys that fans complained about the Gators landing, John Hevesy deemed good enough to come play at Florida, and they showed that on Saturday with the way that they were to, that they were able to push the pile throughout the game. The Gators win the rushing battle convincingly and hit about 250 yards. Malik Davis almost goes for 100. You saw everybody that got involved in the run game really able to contribute. And once again, Emory Jones with plenty of time in the pocket to find his receivers and just get the protection that he needed. So, I mean, DeLance had a great game. Know that he's been battling through injuries and he got shaken up and still came back out there. I think everyone by now has seen the play on Twitter from Malik Davis's touchdown run where Kingsley Egwakan and Ethan White just absolutely pancaked this guy on their double team. And then even Stuart Reese was right there with Michael Tarquin opening up the hole for Malik Davis as well. Richard Garage continues to play solid. So just a Really great game from this offensive line. I think we knew the first two weeks of how they dominated and everybody could see it, but we're still waiting. All right, let's see what they look like against Alabama. Well, they're legit, so they get my first helmet sticker. Cautiously optimistic, I think, would be the phrase coming out of those first two games. Yeah, it was FAU and USF. We lead the nation in rushing, but all right, we're facing the mighty Crimson Tide. I think some fans thought that the Gators might have like 60 yards rushing. I wouldn't have blamed them if they thought that coming in. It's so tough to string together first down, first down, first down. And Florida never can run the ball against Alabama. No one can. I mean, yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's still true what I said in the first segment that 
this Alabama defense is not up to the standards yet that we're used to seeing in the Crimson Tide. But almost 250 rushing yards against Alabama, I don't care. We follow recruiting. The amount of blue-chip prospects they have on that defense, to put up those numbers on that defense, absolutely legitimize them in my mind. Uh, I'm going to go Emory Jones, though, because I think that what he had to face, yeah, it was easier for him, I think, mentally to be comfortable, but it was really his first true start in the system designed around his strengths. And there still was the potential for rust in my mind. I mean, yeah, you've ran a lot of those plays in practice, but you haven't really run them in a game-type environment still. And so to make the guinea pig for those, Alabama, I mean, he could have thrown multiple picks. That was absolutely a possibility in my mind. Or or fumbled some of those pitches and shovel passes. I got to be honest, when he's getting booed there before halftime, I'm sitting there thinking... I mean, guys, most of the flaws we've seen from Emory Jones have come in the second half. I mean, he had a great first half against USF. He was, what was it, 35-3? to And then the picks come in the third quarter. The four straight turnovers come in the third quarter. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, guys, I mean, hold your booze a little bit here. And then he settles down, looks extremely good, keeps Florida in the game, extends drives. Yeah, three straight scoring drives. You know, I, I made a little bit of a quote-unquote big deal about the time they lost from that 99-yard drive. That whole drive still took four minutes and four seconds. I said the first two weeks that Emory Jones, for all the issues that you may have saw, still looked really good when he was running the hurry-up, up-tempo offense. If the Gators can run the line, establish quick drives, and then have the dominant defense that you saw... Emory Jones still has a chance of putting up some really, really good numbers, elevating his play further down the line. His first true start in his offense, I thought he was really, really good. He absolutely gets my helmet sticker on offense. And very few times this season, he's going to go up against defenders like Willie Anderson. Oh, man. I mean, Alabama's loaded on that side of the ball. Give them a lot of credit, too. I mean, we're propping up Florida on what they were able to show in this game, but Alabama is still top to bottom. ton of five-stars a really tough matchup for any opponent. So flipping over to the other side, I got to give my helmet sticker once again, not to a player, but more a unit just in general, the rushing defense from the Gators, man, holding the crimson tide to under a hundred yards on the ground. That sounds good. That's what you want to do. Certainly a goal for every game. But when I saw that, I'm like, that doesn't happen very often. There's no way that that team and that bevy of backs that they usually have and that massive offensive line that they run behind don't eclipse 100 yards in damn near every game that they play. So I looked. Just the third time since 2014 that Alabama has been held under 100 yards rushing in a football game. So shout out to Florida's rushing defense. And yes, you could say, well, they lean more toward Bryce Young and that attack. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. He took off in that first quarter and had the hot start, but they tried to run the ball throughout the course of that game. And those third down stops, those three and outs that the Gators had, that's because their run defense showed up. And in other seasons, when the Gators match up against Alabama, they're gashing them in the run game. So 100 yards to be keeping them under that and, and winning the rushing battle convincingly, hats off to that defense. 
I'm with you. I think that that committee as a whole was fantastic. Yeah, they weren't going against Najee Harris, but I mean, they were facing a top offensive line, probably the first offensive lineman taken in the NFL draft in Evan Neal. And I mean, they looked tremendous. You don't do that very often. They're going to talk about that for years to come, especially on the recruiting trail. Hey, you want to play here? We shut down Bama. So, yeah, a lot of props for that group. You sound like Spurrier. <laughs> That's a compliment. Thank you. I, uh, I'm going to go with actually someone less vague. I'm going to give it to someone who was my X factor coming into the game in Mamou Diabate. I know I had high expectations for him, saying that he had to fill the Ventrell Miller role. And we had talked last week that, oh, who else but Diabate, the guy who backed up Miller at inside linebacker last year. It made a ton of sense. But as Zach and I were talking about it, we had to really put it in context. It wasn't as if Diabate ended last season and they said, all right, Mahmoud, business as usual. You are going to be doing everything the exact same this season. So get ready. No, they said, all right, you're going to be playing more on the edge this year. I know we have a wealth of talent on the edge, but we need you. You have tremendous speed and physicality. You're probably one of the best tacklers on the team. We need you to be able to get into the backfield and be able to drop into coverage. Oh, and oh, and by the way, go line up at nickel too. Yeah. Uh, hey, you're you're cool with doing everything, right? And this guy never I've never heard him complain. We've never heard him be frustrated. Last year, when Florida kind of got embarrassed at linebacker early in the season, he was one of the guys with Amari Bernie that came out and said, This is unacceptable. We got to get better. We're going to get better. He's always showed accountability. And he damn sure did get better throughout the season. And so for them to say, okay, hey, you looked really, really good, but now we want you to do more was absolutely a risk. But we know how much this defense is like cross-training people, not only for the defense's benefit, but because injuries happen. Jeremiah Moon. These guys all need to be able to play a bevy of positions in the defense. Diabate bulked up. And then, all of a sudden, nine months later, they say, oh, hey, the guy you were backing up last year, oh, he's gone down. Remember your old role? You're going to play it. But also, don't forget everything else that we just have spent the last nine months teaching you. I thought he was tremendous on Saturday with a lot of responsibility. Uh, An intelligent guy, cerebral. We knew that he was going to absolutely help the other defensive guys around him be in the position. Talkative and someone who very notably I think is as respected in a different way, but as respected as Ventrell Miller. So you knew that he could command a presence in that defense. And then, yeah, goes out there, eight tackles, second leading tackler for the Gators on Saturday. He was huge in doing what you just said, shutting down that Crimson Tide rushing attack. And looked a lot better against Alabama than he did in the SEC Championship. Definitely. Tougher matchup, obviously, in Atlanta, but... He's shown improvement, as Graham mentioned, and yeah, it was cool to see him lined up right there, middle linebacker, first play of the game, and he's in on the first tackle, too. Kind of set the tone for his day. Well, that's, that's going right. to do it. Obviously, not the result Florida wanted, but to come out of this knowing that you're the only team in recent history that's been able to challenge Alabama and give them a run for their money, it bodes well for the future, and it shows where this team is at in terms of how they've recruited. And that also goes with the transfer portal. What they've done to kind of develop that talent, 
and then build their game plan and their team around it. And they have a chance to go out and have a really special season if they can build on this and, and I think show that, hey, we're good enough to be back in Atlanta once again, and we're good enough to beat Alabama. And, hey, this time just make all your extra points. <laughs> You'll have a better shot. So, But we'll be back later this week to uh, get ready for another rivalry matchup here in the Swamp with Tennessee. So looking That's forward to that. That's still a rivalry? It's still a rivalry. Wow. I don't think the Vols fans claim it much anymore. I don't know if Gator fans claim it either, but uh, the Tennessee fans got they got bigger problems to deal with right now. It is, but it's still Tennessee Hate Week for Gator Nation, so we'll get you guys ready for that game. We'll be back a little bit later. See what Dan Mullen and the players have to say throughout the week. For Graham Hall, I'm Zach Appleberg. No one.